Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. I want to read just a couple of verses from the 37th chapter of the book of Genesis. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Elsie and I were invited to uh, the Cove this fall to do a weekend on the story of Joseph. I thought as I got ready for it, well, this is sort of down my alley because I used to teach Old Testament. So I didn't think too seriously about it until I began to get ready. And when I began to prepare, I thought, wait a minute, I should have started earlier because there's a whale of a lot more here than uh, I ever saw. But as I began to look at this, the story of Joseph, and what an incredible story it is, certainly one of the greatest short stories in human history. But when you begin that magnificent story of Joseph, the fascinating thing to me that I'd never noticed before is that uh, the writer of the book of Genesis says this isn't about Joseph at all. This is about Jacob. Did you notice the way the text, the 37th chapter, which is the beginning of the story of Joseph, begins? Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Now, if you read the rest of the story, you know it, you're familiar with it. You will remember that when you come toward the climax of the story, you will remember that... Uh, that climax uh, settles around Jacob, really, not Joseph, because Jacob uh, comes down from Canaan to Egypt, and then you get the 48th and 49th and the 50th chapters of Genesis, the climax, the close of the story of Joseph, and you have a whole chapter where uh, Jacob is uh, blessing Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, you remember counter to what uh, Joseph wanted him to do. It's the story of Jacob blessing Joseph's progeny. Then you get the next chapter, and when you get into it, you get Jacob blessing his 12 sons, a whole chapter of Jacob. And then you get to the end of that and the beginning of the 50th, the last chapter, and you get the death of Jacob and the carrying of Jacob's body back up into Canaan, the burial of Jacob, and then sort of as a footnote to the story, you get the death of Joseph, and you get his embalming, and then uh, the story of how they kept his body because it was to go with them when they, as a people, went back to Canaan. So it's fascinating to me. It's interesting that the Joseph story is a story of Jacob. And I decided everybody's story is in somebody else's story. Nobody's story ever stands alone. We are all involved in a story that's bigger than us, and there is where we find our significance, there we find our value, there we find our meaning, there we find our purpose. 
Now, as you think about that, you become aware that the real story is not about any of us anyway. The real story is the story about what God is doing in human history, and that we, as part of human history, if we are to have any significance, it is because we are a part of God's story. We are a part of the story that he's running through human history. It is the Christian story. Now, the significant thing is that that is what the Scripture gives us. Genesis gives us the beginning of it, and Revelation gives us the close of it from the earthly perspective and the temporal perspective. Now, you know enough to know that that's in striking contrast to the view of history, the philosophy of history that you get among the Greeks, because in that world, that ancient world, in the Greek mind, the world was eternal. It had no beginning and it had no end. And since it had no beginning and it had no end, what you have is eternal repetition. And if you wait long enough, there'll be a bunch of people called the FAS Society that are made in Wilmore, Kentucky, and people come from all sorts of places, and you'll be one of that crowd. If we just wait long enough, we'll all show up here together again. Because there is no purpose that runs through time, their time is cyclical. You know, that reminds me of the view that unwittingly most people in America have based on our theory of evolution. I'm not a scientist, but I can say this, that we treat evolution in such a way that there is no beginning that we can identify. So we don't know where we actually came from or what started it and how it began, and if we could ever find a beginning, there's no key in that to the end. And inevitably, there is also a loss of an end. But you see, the biblical story is it has a distinct beginning and it has a distinct end. And eschatology is a key part of the biblical faith. And when we lose that belief that there is going to be a culmination and that it will be in Jesus Christ, we have lost a vital part of the biblical faith. When you get to the book of Revelation, you will notice that we are told that the one who rules and reigns at the end is the one who is the beginning, the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And so, in Christ you get the beginning, and in Christ you get the end. He is the sovereign Lord of it all. Now, the thing I want to develop tonight, and I certainly am not a master of what I'm going to say, because I'm telling you where I am in my thinking, but it's speaking to me, and speaking to me very pointedly. And that is that there is a consonance between the beginning and the end that there is an appropriate consonance between the beginning and the end because you got the same person in the beginning that you have in the end. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and all things were made by Him so that you have Christ at the beginning, and then in the culmination every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, and time will find its climax in Him. So if it begins with him and ends with him, then there ought to be a consonance between the beginning and the end. Now, if that's true, then the book of Genesis has an application to me that is very significant, and I ought to read it very carefully. Because in that beginning, it's interesting how now we talk about DNA. Now, I don't know enough to even say anything except I heard this afternoon say, there's some things that everybody has uniquely that your DNA is different from anybody's else, and it is an indication of a long, 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 long string back there. Now, 
I think if we can turn to Genesis and see some things that uh, are very significant to me, and that's what I want to do tonight. I'm convinced that in Genesis you can see the essence of what the biblical faith is and see it in a way that people in our generation, our age, and our stage of Christian history need to look at very carefully because so oftentimes we have looked at the New Testament in such a way that we have missed some of the richness of what is back here and so we've lost something out of the biblical faith by simply thinking in terms of since Christ, A.D. Now you will notice that in the book of Genesis it is centered around persons and people is the name of the game. I wrote that on a, on my computer the other day, and when I touched the thing, you know, to get grammatical corrections, the computer wanted to correct me by telling me people is a plural name. People are the name of the game. But I want to hold to people is the name of the game. There's only one name of the game, and that is persons, because uh, it begins with a person, it is persons who make it up, and it will end in a person. In that consonance between the beginning and the end, and I do not have time to develop that, so let me just suggest that in the beginning you get uh, Abraham, and then you get Isaac and Jacob and a people of God, and they become a nation, a people, through the Exodus, and through Sinai they become a social and a political group. And the thing that bound them together, as far as they were concerned, they had symbols that bound them together. And those symbols included things like circumcision. A man could look at himself, knew that he had the mark of God on him. That mark was not just for him, it was for his family. Let me say, you'll notice that the religion of Scripture always is family religion. You remember that in the Old Testament, the central ceremony was the Passover. And the Passover was not a church service. And it was not a political event. The Passover was a family meal, and you sat with your father and your mother and maybe your grandfather, and you, you sat with your family as you celebrated who you were, so that the family is the basic unit biblically, so that the circumcision was a mark to identify that this family belongs to God, belongs to Yahweh, has a personal relationship with him. This family is part of the chosen people, the people of God. You will remember that they had, after Moses, they had an altar where they made sacrifice. And they had a sacrificial system. They had a liturgy. They had a, a cult. They had a way of expressing their religion. And it was centered around the altar and the tabernacle. And the tabernacle meant the presence of God was with them. So that when they thought or spoke of circumcision, that was their ethnicity. They were Jews. They were Hebrews. They belonged to God. When they made their sacrifices, they were worshiping their God and their sacrifices were a symbol and it was done in relation to the tabernacle in which God dwelt. The tabernacle was the Old Testament expression of Emmanuel, God with us. Now you go to the book of Revelation and when you get to the book of Revelation, you will find that it's very careful to tell us that uh, there is no tabernacle there, there is no temple there. Because you see now, the day of the symbol is past and the reality has fully come. And you don't need the symbols when you have the immediacies there, when you have the realizations there. 
And so there is no temple, there is no altar, there is no sacrificial system, there are none of these symbols. You are with God. In fact, the incredible thing is, we are told that we'll be sitting in the throne of God with the Lamb of God and with the Father. Now, the immediacy is there, and the day for the symbols is past. But Revelation is described in terms of that beginning that's there. Now, I've come to love the book of Genesis from this point of view, because it tells us about the world before they had any symbols. And since it tells us about the world before they had any symbols, there is a sense in only exception is circumcision, which came, you'll remember, with Abraham, but it came late in his life. He had walked with God a long time before that symbol was there. So what you have in Genesis is something remarkably like what you'll have in the end, where there was an immediacy between man and God, and there was a friendship between man and God. There was conversation between man and God, and in one place, you'll remember, God showed up and had lunch with, with Abraham. So there was this immediacy about it. I want to say that I'm interested in Genesis from the standpoint of the fact that I think it may give me some pictures in personal life of the essence of what God wants a person in the world to be like. What should a person who is a believer, a Christian believer, a person who knows God, what should he be like? I want to pick out the three major characters in the book of Genesis. And the interesting thing is Joseph is not one of them. You will notice that the first one is Abraham. And I'm treading very familiar ground, so uh, let me just uh, talk very briefly here about that, but stick with me for a few minutes. What was it that characterized Abraham that caused him to please God? It was his faith. When you get to the New Testament, you read Romans, you read Galatians, you read Hebrews, you read James. Abraham believed God. That text from 15.6 of Genesis is picked up. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so we say that he's an example of justification. Now it's very interesting to me how we interpret that. We interpret that from a New Testament perspective. Abraham believed in God. And because he believed in God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, he has a place in heaven. Therefore, his sins are forgiven. Therefore, he is saved eternally, and he's ready for another world. But the interesting thing is there's not a line, not an iota, not a trace of that in the book of Genesis. What did Abraham believe? Abraham believed God when he said, you're going to have a son. That doesn't have anything to do with heaven <laughs> for the moment. He said, your son is going to give you a family, and there'll be a progeny. You'll have a great progeny. That progeny will become a national entity. There will be kings that will come out of that progeny. And through that line, all the nations of the earth will find their purpose. All the nations of the earth will find their fulfillment. All the nations of the earth will find their reason for existence. All the nations of the earth will find their way to exist. Now, how much is there about forgiveness of sins and, and life after death in that? Now, we need forgiveness of sins. Don't take me wrong. I'm not wiping any of that out. But I'm just saying that Abraham 
believed God for something in time and space. And God looked at him and said, I like him. And he called him his friend. Because you see, this is God's world. And God did not put us here to wait for a chance to escape it. God did not put us here to run from it. God put us here to embrace our world and to draw it to our own hearts and in drawing it to our own hearts, draw it to the eternal Christ. So the faith of Abraham has to do with what God was going to do in time and space before he died. And what he was going to do out of what he did in time and space before he died through what God did before he died in time and space. And so Abraham said, yeah, one of these days, this country's going to belong to my descendants. He was an alien in Canaan. But he said to himself, these people here think I'm a foreigner. But I'm the ultimate native here. <laughs> and these guys are going to pass. But I'm an ultimate native right here in this alien world. Now, you know, I don't find many Christians that feel that way. And I want to raise the question, have we lost something? <laughs> you know, I like that notion. And you know what I think about when I think about that? I think about the old-fashioned notion of what a pastor is. You know, where a fellow believes that God has led him to a community, not to a church. Has led him to a community and puts that community on his heart. And then he reaches out his arms of faith around that community and says, I believe God is going to build a witness here. And he embraces time and space and claims it, saying, not I'm going to do it. Be very careful here. There's no human works in this. And it's not what I'm going to do. I believe God's going to do something around here. And I'm going to be present when he does it. Now, that fits a, a something in the Old Testament which I've never heard developed adequately for me. I'm sure it has been, but I've never heard it. And that is the emphasis in the Old Testament on wait. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And if you'll go through the Old Testament, you will find that the verb wait occurs again and again. And it's one of the great words of the Old Testament. And it's interesting that the Hebrew word for hope is the noun of the verb to wait. So how was a Hebrew to wait upon the Lord? He was to wait in hope. Not that things were going to get worse, but that God was going to do something and it was going to be better. Now this is not blind uh, superficial optimism. This is faith in the living God this is God's world, and he wants to do something in it. Now, you know, I notice that the great Christians, the ones that impress me the most, have lived that way. Uh, you know, you'll forgive me for this, but I love the name Asbury, Francis Asbury. Because you know what he did? He rode all over the eastern part of the United States. Why? He believed God was going to claim it. 
And it's a rather remarkable story what God has done in human history. We may throw it all away, but it's an incredible story. And uh, Francis Asbury died on the road claiming the, the United States for God. Now, I've had an association with OMS for years, much to my benefit. But uh thing fascinated me about uh, the founding events of OMS and the origins of it, two telegraph operators who went to Japan with a Japanese believer who had come to this country to learn about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the three of them ended up in Japan. And you heard uh, Mrs. Coppage this morning speak about this. When Calman got a vision of putting the gospel in every home in Japan, claiming Japan for Christ. And he lived out the rest of his days reaching out, claiming Japan for Christ. Now, it hasn't all turned out the way he would have liked it to have turned out, but one of the interesting things is that next May there is going to be a meeting in Tokyo of nine different Protestant denominations in Japan, all of which were born in the work of Juju Nakata and Charles Kalman and E.A. Kilburn, telegraph operators who claimed the country. Now, if God can do that with a telegraph operator, wouldn't it be nice if he had a shot like that at some seminary graduates? <laughs> you, you, you understand what I'm saying? I have a suspicion that sometimes the more we know, the more education we get, the less we have the faith to grasp our day for God and for our world. But these guys did. And I think God looked at Charles Calvin and said, you know, he reminds me of Abraham. I think he looked at Francis Asbury and said, he reminds me of Abraham. I think he looked at William Carey, who put his arms around India. And what God did in William Carey's life, incredible story. You can keep going through. David Livingston put his arms around the continent for God. Now, I want to know, do you have your arms around anything? And I don't want you to get off the spot. I want to keep you on the spot. Because God is looking for people who, they'll say, yes, I believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He died on the cross to save me from my sins. I'm grateful for this. But what God is looking for is somebody who will save some of his world for him. No, let me say something else. I like the fact that God didn't start with Abraham until he was only three years younger than I am. <laughs> so when Abe reached my stage of the game, he'd only been three years on the journey. But you and I are sitting here tonight because of Abraham taking that journey with God. And you see, Abraham's story becomes a bigger story. And you and I, God wants our story, like Joseph's is a part of Jacob. He wants your story and mine to be part of Abraham's story, the redemption of the world. Now, do you believe? Are you a believer? <laughs> I'm not talking about some abstract truth, theological truth, orthodox as can be. We need that. I want to know what you believe 
that God wants to do in your life. Now, the only way you can believe is to get close enough to him for him to tell you. And it means that you've got to have a personal relationship with him enough that you feel in here something that says, this is what he put me here for, and I must claim it for him. And so, that's Abraham. Now, that is a man who believed. Now, the second person is Jacob. Now, I think there is something for us to see in Jacob that we need to see very clearly. And it fits the New Testament. But I think sometimes we uh, spiritualize the New Testament and miss it. Now, you know that Jacob's, when he was born, was born a twin grasping his brother's heel. Because the one that was born first got a double inheritance. And so when they saw this infant boy grasping his brother's heel as if he wanted to pull him back into the womb and get out ahead of him, they called him Grasper. That was his name. Supplanter. He wanted what the other guy had. And uh, you find that graspy character in Jacob through most of his life. You will remember that uh, he joined in. <laughs> I remember Mark Tannenbaum saying, when you see an evil and you keep silent about it, you become part of it. And so Jacob saw his mother's evil and he became part of it. And so he was in on the deception of his father in order for him to get the blessing of his father that should have gone to Esau. You get these stories in Jacob's life, and you find that he's always manipulating to his own advantage. I've come to the place where I've decided that Jacob is probably the supreme example in Scripture of a sinner. That the essence of sin is in that you want to center things around yourself. And you want to take care of number one. I notice that Paul compares Jesus to Adam and Eve in the garden in Philippians 2. And he says that while Adam and Eve wanted to be equal with God, Jesus was willing to give up his place with God, emptied himself, was not a grasper after it, and he became a man like one of us, came one of us, so that we could be redeemed. And so you get the reversal of the fall, or that grasping of Adam and Eve in Jesus when he emptied himself for our sakes. Now, you notice that graspers are always manipulators. And as I read the story of Jacob, I'm convinced it was so deep in him that he was totally unaware of it. It just came unconsciously. You remember he spent his, what, 21 years or so with his relatives in the north country with Laban, and now he's headed back home because God told him to go back home. And as he goes, when he gets close enough, he knows that uh, he's in the vicinity where his brother whom he cheated is. And let me tell you, brothers in those days were capable of not loving each other. Just look at the Joseph story. The brothers ready to kill him. And why were they ready to kill him? 
because he tattled on them to their father. Now, Esau has had a raw, raw, raw deal. And Jacob's coming home. And so Jacob gets in the vicinity and he sends some of his men ahead to find where Esau is and scout out the situation and to tell Esau that his loving brother's coming home. And so in a little while, his team of men come back and they say, well, we met him and he's on his way here and he's got 400 armed men with him. And you don't take 400 armed men to have a hospitality party for your brother coming home. And so Jacob says, what do I do? What do I do? I think the next part of this story was done totally unconsciously. You remember he took his possessions and the Old Testament spells them out. He took, you remember, some of his goats, a whole stack of the males and females and sent them in one group as a gift to his loving brother Esau. Then he took some of his sheep, males and females, and sent them ahead as a separate gift and said, when you get to Esau, tell him this is a gift from his loving brother Jacob. Then he set a bunch of his camels, very valuable animals, males and females, and said, tell Esau this is a gift from his loving brother Jacob. And then he sent, you will remember, his cattle. And then he sent his donkeys, a whole bevy of donkeys, and what he wanted to do is said, maybe I can wear down his anger. Then you will remember he had his family left. And he took his wives and the sons and their possessions that they carried and sent them ahead of him. And he stayed behind on the opposite side of the brook. And he was alone. Do you know how hard it is for God to get you and me alone where he's got just us and we've turned loose everything in our lives? It's not easy to turn loose the things in our lives. The incredible thing is the way Abraham was able to turn loose Isaac. I heard a story the other day, a priceless WGM was interviewing some new missionary candidates. And a couple came along. The way I heard the story, uh, I figured there must have been about 40. They were middle-aged and uh, second career people, not highly trained, humble people, very devout. And they said, you know, we came to know Christ. And then we began to walk with him. And he began to talk to us about serving him. And we began to feel he wanted us to volunteer for overseas service. So we prayed about it. And the wife who testified first said, I did not want to go overseas. Leave my children. And so I argued, but God wouldn't let me go. And so one day at the end of a church service, I took a knife, theoretically, spiritually, went to the altar, laid the knife on the altar, 
and said, God put it in my heart until I've turned loose my children and put you first. And she humbly said, and he did. And I'm ready to go. Now, you know, that's radical for Americans, Christians, but it was always radical. <laughs> it was radical when God asked Abraham to. But anyway, she turned them loose. Then the husband very simply said, when we felt God wanted us overseas, we prayed about a society. And God led us to you. And so we are in your lap. Do with us what you will. There was a stranger who was a visitor in the board meeting and a consultant that they had brought in. And when the coffee break came, he turned to the chairman of the board and looked at the empty seats that these candidates had sat in and said to him, you know, I've never heard anything like this before. But he turned to the president of the society and said, when those two people said, we're in your lap, do with us what you will, he said, you took on a massive responsibility, a massive accountability. But it's not easy to turn loose. It's not easy to say to God, you can do with me what you please. You can take from me my securities. But Jacob, God trapped him and forced him to get empty-handed, turn everything loose, and quit grasping. And he had no hope but God. And you know, when I get to that point, uh, I don't know where I heard the line, but somebody asked, is the guy who only has God any poorer than the guy who has God plus everything? And the guy who's got God plus everything is any richer than the fellow who only has God? What an only. But Jacob is helpless. God is his only hope. And there's where the change comes in Jacob. Now, uh, you know, it's not easy to get to that place and worse, it's not easy to stay there. But if we are to see God work, it can't be God and me. It's got to be God alone, my hands off. So I want to ask you, as you look at what you think God wants to do in your life, are your hands off or are you manipulating? Now that's Genesis. That's not the New Testament. <laughs> These guys had never heard of the cross. Now, the third one is Judah. And the Judah story has now become uh, very impressive to me and very pertinent. It's interesting that in these, the two of these people gave their names to the people of God. Jacob became Israel, the one who prevailed with God the one who wrestled with him. You remember Jacob got to the place where he said, I don't have any hope if you don't help me. You're my only hope, and he would not let God go. 
And God changed his name, called him Israel. And so, today there's a nation in the world. You know, I wish sometimes I could ask the editors of the New York Times why it is that they can't keep Israel off the front page. As I said yesterday, was it? They never write about Nineveh or Babylon. God's story is still running. And we get these reminders of it. Now, the other one is Judah. And so, a part of the southern kingdom was the kingdom of Judah, and today you speak about a Jew, and you've got the whole Judah story, if you're to understand what that means. Yehudah became Yud, became a Jew. Now, Judah is a different kind of person. He's not so much the grasper, He's just a genuine worldling who's interested in pleasure and just living a good life and enjoying the world around him. You remember that Abraham, when he was old, said to his servant, don't let my son Isaac marry a local girl. Because the culture around them, the Canaanite culture, was pagan. And Abraham was thinking, we have a great heritage. We know the true God. These people don't know the true God. And we're the only people that know the true God. So there's a great responsibility on us. Do not let my son marry a Canaanite girl, because she may corrupt his faith, like Solomon's wives corrupted his. And so Abram said to his servant, you go back to my home country and get a wife for my son from the family. You will remember that Rachel said, I'm not willing to let Jacob marry one of these Canaanite girls, so send him back to our family in the north to get a wife for him. And Isaac said, I concur. Because you see, they were the inheritors of a faith the faith, the story. And it could have disappeared from mankind. And so Abraham and now Isaac, they are trying to preserve that faith. Judah didn't care a flip about that faith. So what did he do? He went down to live with a Canaanite. And when he got down there, he saw a good-looking girl, and so he married her. And they lived with the Canaanites. And they became part of the Canaanite culture. And then when his son was old enough, he married his son to a Canaanite. And it is very easy to see the biblical faith just disappearing in a pagan culture. And while he's living this way, it's sheep shearing time. Sheep shearing time was like county fair used to be. And so everybody came to town, and everybody came for a good time. And you remember that Judah had a daughter-in-law that he had given to his first son. He died, gave her to the second son. He died, and Judah said, something ill-fated about her. I'm surely not going to give her to my third son. And that was counter to all that was right in that culture. He owed her a son 
by one of his sons. So he was disingenuous. He didn't say, I'll never give my son to you. He just said, you go live with your father for a while and my son gets older, we'll, uh, we'll take care of that. He was a good game player. Not a serious note in him that I can find. So he's at the county fair and he sees sitting over here a prostitute. Now it's interesting that she was called in the Hebrew a holy woman, which tells you what the Canaanite culture was like. The religious women, the holy women, were prostitutes. That's the way you worship Canaanite gods. And so he went in and had a religious experience with Canaanite prostitutes. And she said, uh, what are you going to pay me now? So he gave her, you remember, his staff and his ring, his seal. And then uh, he went on his way, turned to one of his servants and said, now go back and find that holy woman at the crossroads and get my staff and my seal. And when he went back, the guy said, they said, there's been no holy woman around here because he had committed incest with his daughter-in-law. And then he found she was pregnant. And the proper thing in that day of the game was to kill her, stone her to death for adultery. And so he made arrangements to execute her and as he's ready to execute her, she looks at him and says, let me tell you who the father of my baby is. And she pointed her finger at him the way Nathan pointed his finger at David and said, you are the father of my child. And for the first time, you get an indication of a change in Judah. And Judah says, she's more righteous than I am. And he went home. <laughs> he went back to Jacob. He went back to his father. Then you remember how they went down to Egypt to get food. Reuben, the oldest son, was a spokesman. But when they come back with the food and need to go again, and Joseph has said, I will not receive you if you don't bring your younger brother. It's not Reuben who speaks because Reuben has already committed adultery with one of his father's wives. This is a great world, isn't it? It's remarkably pertinent and remarkably like today, isn't it? And so uh, Reuben's no longer the leader. And it's Judah now who has to plead with his father. Give us Benjamin and let us go get the grain. And the father says, I've lost my special son Joseph, now you're going to take my other favorite away and I'll never see him again and you'll bring my gray hairs down to the grave. And Judah says, we can't go unless you do. And finally Judah says to his father, Father, if you'll let him go, I'll be responsible. I'll be accountable for getting him back to you and whatever the price, I'll pay it. You know, that represents an interesting shift in a man who was living for himself and for sensual and pleasure and otherwise. Now he's accountable for his brother. And when he gets down, you remember, to Joseph, they give them the grain, but Joseph has his divining cup put in Benjamin's sack. And then they travel about a day's journey and Joseph sends his servants after them. 
and accuses them of stealing Joseph's divining cup. And they say, oh no, can't be. Crisis. And they make it pell-mell back to Joseph. And who's the spokesman? It's Judah. And Judah says, it's all our fault. Our guilt with our brother has come down on our heads. That's interesting. You get the moment when he says, I'll be accountable for my brother. And now he's confessing his guilt, the guilt. He's talking to his brothers. And Joseph overhears it. And then Judah turns to Joseph. And I don't know that there's a more dramatic passage anywhere in Scripture than this. When Judah stands before Joseph, his brother, that he doesn't know he's his brother. The second most powerful man in the world. And pleads for him to let his brother go. And he finally says, you can't make me bring my father's gray hairs down to the grave. Take me in his stead and let me be your slave. And Joseph says, these guys have changed. And Judah had. And Joseph immediately is broken. Now when I get to that point, I find myself in Gethsemane. And I hear Jesus praying. And you know what he prays? He says, Father, let these guys love each other the way you and I and the Spirit love each other. Let them be one the way we're one. And our oneness is, is where we care more about the other one, live for the other one instead of for ourselves. And Jesus says, Father, when they get to that place, the whole world will know that I am the Christ. You know, one of the great tragedies of human history is the way the ecumenical movement interpreted that. They interpreted it in terms of political an ecclesial unity, organizational unity, totally missing what Jesus is talking about here, where Jesus is saying when you can get them to where their hearts are turned inside out, to where they care more about somebody else than they do themselves, then the world will say, that's real. And that's true. And Joseph weeps, falls on his brother's neck and says, I'm your brother. Go get your father and bring him to Egypt. Now, what do you get in Judah? Look at the development in these three. Abraham believes God. For the here and now that God is going to be at work in his life. Believes it enough that he lays his life on the line to see what God's going to do. Jacob comes along and says, it won't be our work if it's done 
Lord, you're going to have to do it. And Judah says, and what you're going to do is turn us inside out to where we are remarkably different from the world around us that is centered in itself. And we're going to be inexplicable to them because we care more about somebody else than we do ourselves. I don't know about you, but I don't believe I've seen anything in the text that isn't there. But do you know what we've done with the gospel? It's not to make Judas out of us. It's to give us a ticket past the judgment. And the motivation in it all is pure self. And that is simply the beginning of the Christian walk. You see, what you've got permeating Genesis is the demand for what Wesley called Christian perfection. Perfect love. Where God is supreme. You know the difference between what we do and what he does. You glory in what he does. And you release him to work in your life and keep your hands off of it. And then he's free to work. Some of you have heard me do this, but let me just... That has explained to me the story of Moses at the rock. You remember when it kept him out of Canaan? He struck the rock and said to the people, do we have to bring water out of this rock for you? And God said, Moses, I'll give the people water, but you're going to miss Canaan because there's no we in this story. (laughs) There's no we in this story. God said, it's all I. And when I am central, then you'll find your fulfillment. Now I want to ask you, what does God want to do with you where you are? Are you where you're supposed to be? I turned to one guy here this week and said, are you where you belong to be? And he blinked for a moment and said, well, for now. I said, that's all you'll ever know. (laughs) You can only know now where you belong. But are you where you belong? He said, I think I am. I didn't go to the next question, well, what's God got you there for? But he's got every one of us where we are for a purpose. And as part of his world, he wants us to embrace and claim for him. And then be an instrument through which he can move. Clean and pure where it's, we're not contaminating it with our hands on it. We're clean and he can flow through and he can do what he needs to do. And we find that he starts with us. And what he does is he turns us inside out. And somebody else becomes more important to us than we are to ourselves. That's God-likeness. And that's what he wants to do with us. Now, uh, that's what I felt I should share tonight. I'd like to know if you've gotten, if you've gotten to the beginning book. There are further developments later in Scripture, but here's where the Bible begins. And it's the essence of everything God ever wants, I think. 
out of you and me. Are you there? I thought uh, we've we've heard some remarkable truth during our time together, remarkable messages. I thought tonight we ought to end up together praying together. And let me tell you how what I'd like to suggest. It may be that God's dealing with you about something special. And you need somebody, some individual, somebody to pray with you. There are people in this crowd who'd be glad to pray with you about specifics. Then you may find that if you ask somebody to pray with you, the person you ask may want you to pray with him or her about something specific. But uh, if that's so, then two of you get together. But otherwise, I'd like for us to do it the way God does it. Three at a time. <laughs> and let three people meet and uh, pray together, share together, and pray in terms of what does God want to do with me where I am in his world. He loves his world and he wants to redeem it. Pray about are our hands off to where if anything happens, it'll be clear who it is that does it. We will not have influenced it except to open the door for it through us. And then, last of all, whatever we are, we are people who've had his love perfected in our hearts, where the biggest thing in our lives is not ourselves. It's others, those for whom Christ died, and we live for somebody beyond ourselves and find our fulfillment in that sacrifice of self. Let's, let's bow our heads together for a moment. Father, we are pricelessly rich in that you have given to us your word. We do not want to be simply people who say we treasure it. We want it to become living truth within our hearts. And there's not a one of us in this group that should be a spectator tonight or just an observer. You've put us here to be participants. So Lord, spell out to us what you want to do. And begin to put within us a faith if it isn't already there. And if it is there, strengthen it to believe, not just for a future in another world, but for the current world of which we are a part, the world for which you died. You didn't die for heaven, you died for our world. And Lord, let us give ourselves for its, for, for its reaching, being reached to, with your truth and with your redemptive power. In Christ's name.